0: I can remember specific days in my career when I saw something that nobody had ever seen before. And you can't underestimate that. The creation of something, some new knowledge and new understanding about the world that didn't exist before you investigated it um, is a remarkable thing. And to be continuing to contribute to that is an amazing position to be able to be in. Hello
1: and welcome to the Decoding Life podcast with Catherine and Sophie. Although much progress is being made to accommodate staff having children, there's still many challenges associated with this in a research career which I hadn't previously considered. Today we share with you an incredibly important conversation we had with Anne Bishop. Anne was undergoing a highly successful research career, completing a PhD and multiple postdoctoral positions, on track to hopefully running her own lab one day. Having delightful twin boys threw an eight-year break into this plan, making career progress more difficult. In 2019, Anne was awarded the Janet Thornton Fellowship to facilitate her return. We get an inside look as to what this experience was like and insights into Anne's past and current research projects. If you're curious about what a career looks like studying how bacteria, such as cholera and E. coli, interact with our immune systems, or about how it feels to return to research after a break, this is the episode for you.
2: just mentioned you're primarily a lab-based scientist um, which for me I find really interesting as someone who's never been in a biology lab and sits in front of a computer all day. So could you explain a little bit about what your day looks like to us?
0: So one of the things I actually love most about research um, certainly lab-based research is that no day is the same um, and then certainly in academic research there's also a lot of freedom to organize yourself and to change your days and to to switch things around as you as needed which also helps with sort of child childcare and Um, working part time. So an average day I would spend some time at my computer probably designing experiments, asking colleagues for help with things, reading papers where they've done similar things Um, and then like writing out in detail what my protocol is going to involve. So there's that side of things. And then I'll be in the lab. I'll be using my um, A-level biology stuff, like a bit of molarity, working out how many grams of stuff to put in things, you know, on Excel, sort of working out dilutions, that kind of thing that you think is totally useless when you're um, studying at a (laughs) school, but it's actually totally essential every day. Um, So there's this sort of prep side of things. um, And then... Then they'll be actually running the experiment once you've got everything set up. Um, so spending some time streaking things out, growing things on on agar plates with nutrients, shaking them, warming them up because I work on you know biological organisms that like to be at body temperature. So mm-hmm. putting things into incubators. And then there's the more exciting end of things when the data comes off some kind of machine. So I haven't actually done any microscopy here, but I've done loads in the past. So you could spend a lot of time like looking down a microscope, taking pictures of it, analysing those pictures, working out, often counting things that are on the pictures. So I'm hoping to, to go back to sort of working with human cells, combining them with the bacteria that I work mm. on um, and ideally growing organoids, which are mini guts. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Can you tell us how that works? This was one of the main reasons I came back to science, right? So in the eight years I've been out, the sort of mini, well, the the organoid system where you can take cells and de-differentiate them, so stop them being sort of particular type of cell from adults and turn them into what are called pluripotent cells so ones that can become anything so they've got the potential to be any type of cell and then turn them back into something that you want them to be i.e all the different cells that would normally be in a gut it's just Deeply exciting that this is possible now. So that's happened since I was last in research. So um, some of my colleagues are already doing that in the lab, and I'm going to make these mini-guts so that I can then see how they interact with the bacteria that cause gut infections that I'm interested in. And I went to a talk at a, um, a sort of conference about bacterial vaccines, and this woman gave this talk about the mini guts and she was putting some immune cells in there as well and bacteria and combining it and she had all these pictures of what happens i was like i want to do that (laughs) so that's the plan but for now i'm just trying to work out which bacteria i want to put where and i'm also taking things that they would normally experience inside the gut um so um mucus i'm crazy about mucus which sounds really really weird but I'm <laughs> fascinated by the things that um happen inside your body that involve mucus on in your gut um so i'm treating them with with mucus components and um, trying to see how the bacteria respond to things that would normally be present in a gut. Um, The ones that cause make you sick compared to ones that don't make you sick. Um, So that's the basic idea. And we have this big collection of bacteria that we know all their genetics. So that's the real challenge to me. I know almost too much about them already. So I'm trying to work out how to um, get that information into a form that enables me to choose some strains to work on in the lab, where you can really only do things on a slightly smaller scale. I mean, yeah.
1: Rather than Um, testing everything.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's not so easy to test everything, but I can use the tools that I'm learning um, from people around me who are used to using computers to analyse massive amounts of genomic data. Um, So I can delve into that in order to make more sensible choices about which strains to use. Because people generally have done this kind of research just with like one lab strain. It's like, yep. is that representative or is it not? That's my, my big question. And what pathogen are you mostly working on at the moment? I'm actually working on toxigenic E. coli at the moment. Okay. Yeah, because it, it causes a similar type of disease to cholera, so a watery diarrhea. But it's enabled me to um, gain lots of the skills that I need, that I will be working on cholera with. Um, without having to work in, in a, a level three containment lab initially yeah, absolutely.
1: so when a lot of people think about e-coli you sort of think about the big news stories about the lettuce that was contaminated in the grocery store right yeah um, so you mind just taking a quick step back and giving a yeah, Quick e. coli so, overview yeah so,
0: so e. coli is, is part of your normal gut flora, although it's thought you 're not supposed to really have too much of it um, it 's it's a bad sign if you 've got a lot of E. coli in your gut, but it's part of your normal gut flora, but some e. coli can pick up extra genes that can then make Toxins, or they can allow them to stick to your gut. So there are different types of um, pathogenic um, E. Coli that can make you sick in different ways. Um, they do like to stick to um, plants, so that seems to be something that they're quite um, capable of doing, um, so hence um, getting contaminated um, salads and that kind of thing that you do hear about. Um, and you can get contaminated meat as well um, from, um, from cattle, um, fecal contamination into, into meat meat, for instance. Um, So the the bacteria that I'm working on are generally um, sort of travellers' diarrhea type of disease. Um, They tend to be in contaminated water sources in countries where they don't have good sanitation, Um, so lower and middle income countries. So enterotoxigenic E. coli, they carry one of two um, main types of toxin and that um, upsets your gut, causes the diarrhea, plus things to allow them to stick. So most E. coli will... Um, stick in your gut but not deep down underneath the mucus layer and um, where they can really make your cells unhappy yeah um, so and then a lot of your so
1: your previous so if we go back further here so prior to taking your break um you studied biochemistry and microbiology
0: is that correct so my phd is not microbiology at all um, so that was also been a steep learning curve in my career. Um, so when I when I finished my degree, which was um, a biochemistry degree, but actually I didn't really like the chemistry side of it that much. <laughs> I really liked the biology. Um, so I, I was fascinated by developmental biology, cell signaling, cancer research, that sort of side of things. Not I, I, I didn't want to be an ecologist, I knew that, or a zoologist. didn't want to work on whole animals. But yeah. I was interested in the sort of cell size of things. Um, not particularly in the exact chemicals that were doing what in the cell. So that's where my comfort zone was. um, And that's what I wanted to pursue for my PhD. Um, But it was really human cell biology that I loved. It was mainly because I wanted to work in cancer research um, because my grandmother had breast cancer while I was an undergraduate. And that made me really passionate about the idea of trying to find out how we treat cancers and whether there are better tools and more specific tools that don't make you quite so sick um, overall um, because I mean it really is a blunt tool that we use mostly in cancer Mm -hmm. Um, um, and so that's what made me really want to get into the research in cancer but during my PhD we kept using all these tools that belong to bacteria so they made (laughs) so it was like oh another bacterial toxin that inhibits these, these human cells Um, processes that I was working on I was like well if bacteria already know so much about cell biology they've evolved to manipulate us um, why am I working on the cells on their own and I wanted to work at that interface between the bacteria and what they already knew about how to manipulate us um, and what that could tell us about the cell biology of human cells Um, but once I'd spent um, so I switched after my PhD to a, a microbiology lab um, so I started working for Gordon Dugan's group, who were at Imperial College in London at the time, um, and uh, working on salmonella, um, so both the ones that cause typhoid, so someone of typhi, and ones that cause basic gastroenteritis, um, gut infections, um, because they're masters of manipulation when it comes to human um, cells, so they really know how to mess with us. Um, so, so I, 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 just, I carried on working at this interface between human cells, growing human cells and putting bugs on them. So I spent my whole PhD trying to keep my cells sterile so that like no infections. And the day that I first put salmonella onto my tissue culture cells, like my, my cancer cells in a dish, that was like really horrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, I'm actually going to put bacteria on my cells. But I, got over it. I got over it quite quickly. Um, and, and then I did. I had, did a couple of projects looking at um, interactions between different types of Salmonella and, and human cells, um, but I gradually I was surrounded by people who were doing more immunology, so how our immune systems respond to the bacteria, um, and also vaccine work. And my boss was a big proponent of vaccines against typhoid, and um, I went to I actually because I had didn't know much about microbiology after my degree or my PhD. Um, But now I was in a microbiology lab. I actually went to the lecture course that my supervisor Gordon Dugan gave for the final year um, students. Um, in the biochemistry degree, and I sat through all these lectures and I learned a load of microbiology. Which yeah. was brilliant, as well as reading books and, and papers and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then a year yeah. later, I actually taught on that microbiology course. <laughs> so it was like very steep learning. Way though. steep learning. Yeah. But I was really, really engrossed in the whole field by then, um, but very much from a human sort of cell responses um, side of things. Um, so I still still to this day feel like my basic microbiology is sort of piecemeal, you know, it's a bit disjointed. There are things that people who, who've done undergraduate microbiology or microbiology PhDs take for granted that I might... Not really know about properly. If you see what I mean. So yeah. it's kind of interesting. I still feel a little bit of an imposter in the microbiology <laughs> field, um, even after all of the things you've after done. After all those years, it yeah, never goes away. I know. But towards so towards the end of my my four years of that postdoc, I I started to get really interested in the the more um, sort of the impact of these infectious diseases on people and the whole world of the low socio economic status, people who were living with infectious diseases that i didn 't have to think about in my day to day life in england and i instead of wanting to work on cancer, it made me really want to do something about that because it seemed like that was a much more tenable thing um, so Although my research doesn 't directly impact on that every day, I do think about how to make better diagnostics and better better understand the spread of these different bacteria and how can we work out which ones are really causing the disease by monitoring them genomically. And I felt like there's so many people who shouldn't be living with these kind of diseases that if there's anything I can do that will help contribute to improving people's lives and i did work on a vaccine project um in a second postdoc that i did and that's when i moved into cholera research okay yeah so there was this tiny short project i did at the end of my time at imperial college um because gordon dugan left us he came to set up this the sanger research institute (laughs) um the well part of it um the the sort of microbiology um practical lab-based stuff, um, building on the the genomics at the time. So he moved from London to to Cambridge, and I stayed on and worked for a short time on intrapathogenic E. coli, so a slightly different beast. So this one makes a kind of special um, injection system in order to manipulate our cells. Um, So I worked on that for a little while, and an animal model of that. So this is the first time I'd actually done any animal work, which, although I didn't find it ethically I find it dubious but I feel like there's no other way to get to the bottom of some subjects and working out how bacteria get transmitted between hosts there's really not a lot you can do without having some hosts and although there are lots of people getting sick from these things you can sort of see how it's happening if you've got a good system so we had a a bacterium that infects mice naturally it naturally makes them have um, not exactly diarrhea but have a gut infection and they spread it between them in the cage and we discovered this and my friend had um, got a prize for her study on this um, Susie Wiles she'd made a luminescent version of this bacterium mm. so it glows and then you Is can this follow factor? Yes, that's right. Citrobacter rodentium, as in rodent, in fact. And so she followed it in the cages and she saw where it was going and that they were eating it and spreading it between them. And then she was also able to follow it in their gut without even having to um, kill any animals um, until the end of the experiment. You're supposed to replace. Replace animal research if you can. Um, Reduce the numbers that you use if it's ethically... um, um, the right thing to do, you still have to have enough power to find out what you need to know but but reduce the numbers as much as possible um, and then refine what you do to make it um, at least impact to the animals so she got a prize for three hours research um, by being able to follow one animal for a long time instead of having to kill lots of animals using her luminescent bugs so she yeah. and I worked together she'd done lots of animal work I had not and we took the bugs from the stool from the mice and put them onto epithelial cells that I was growing in a dish to see what happened and it turns out that they are way more capable of making um, these injections that they make into cells and through a type 3 secretion system and when they've been primed by coming out of the gut of an animal than they are normally and when we grow them in the laboratory. So basically the bacteria from the actual faeces in the state that they would be in to infect a new individual were primed for infection in a way that we hadn't appreciated previously. Um, but Absolutely. it led me to, to the research that um, the second person I worked for had done on cholera where the similar phenotype is seen. So when you take um, bacteria, cholerae, that causes cholera from the stool of patients, um, mm-hmm. It's much more infectious when you infect an animal model. Could you explain what a phenotype is? Um, so that's something that you can observe. Um, so um, ability to grow in something, ability to infect something, um, ability to make something um, so uh, the levels of a protein in, in, some, in a bacterium before or after you've treated it in some way. So it's a, an observable characteristic, I guess. It's anything yeah. um, you could call a phenotype.
1: Um, just listening to you talk, it's like you've done so many different cool things with regards to moving from human research into microbiology and then the interface of that. And then suddenly you just took all this time off. And like, that must have been so hard because just listening to you, you're obviously so passionate about all of it. Um, I can't imagine you just stopped thinking about it. No,
0: I didn't. Um, um So my second postdoc on cholera w- was in America. So we moved from London to America. My husband and I both got jobs in Boston. Oh, it's a brilliant city. Definitely recommend working there. Um, And... It, that was an amazing time. There was a lot of money in the lab I was in to support the research we, and I got to go to Bangladesh and work with um cholera patient samples and test a vaccine that we were working on in a mouse model and It was an amazing and fascinating time um, and then i I got pregnant, which we wanted and i was I was desperate for children and and it turned out to be twins. So that was a bit of a shock. I wasn't (laughs) intending to have two at once. I intended to have two children, but not necessarily two at once. Um, But we were coming to the end of um, both of our um, contracts and our visas, and we decided we wanted to bring up our children in the UK, near to our families, especially with two at once, um, having some extra help. Um, So we moved back without any positions, but I had applied for... um, research positions and was fully intending to stick with it and to move to the next level and run my own group. And I had written proposals for what I wanted to do and following up on the citrobacter stuff and also um, cholera and vaccine development. and then I, for a, re- a really short time, I worked for the same person I'm working for now, for Nick oh. Thompson at the Sanger Institute, because he just started working on cholera genomics and he didn't really know the field. Um, and they were just starting to write up their first sequencing project. Um, so I, I joined his team for a short while, analysing some Citrobacter data and also just helping them work out who did what in the cholera field and what yeah. what questions there were to ask. and. Um, and then my twins were born three months prematurely, um, wow. when they were only, we were only at, um, 25 weeks gestation. Wow. Yeah. So we hadn't even had the fourth trimester as they call it sometimes. Uh, so the third trimester. Um, so yeah, that, that hit me harder than I'd expected. Um, and I just couldn't imagine being away from them. I mean, they were in incubators and everything at the beginning and, yeah. Gordon Dugan and 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 Nick were amazing and they they gave me compassionate leave and all sorts and they were incredibly supportive and it, but at the same time my husband got offered a, a lectureship in Nottingham so I had these two babies in incubators and then we had to move to Nottingham and I couldn't imagine putting the the sort of emotional and intellectual energy into my work. Mm-hmm for a while I just I could I couldn't focus on that anymore it didn't make any sense anymore I mean the things I wanted to do were both fascinating and important um but it just didn't seem to matter anymore and I couldn't make myself apply for jobs while I didn't really care (laughs) I was like all I wanted to do was build my nest and keep my babies safe and that was the only thing that seemed to make any sense at all so and that was the case for a good while um Mm -hmm. So at least two and a half years, maybe even three years, I just couldn't imagine doing anything except looking after them. And it, it was I was, just, it was. a surprise to me. But I think part part of it was that I like to do a good job of things. And it seemed like I, I'm not very good at compromising. And Yeah. And, and that would have been a compromise. It was, just felt side. like, yeah, it felt like I needed to put everything into this and then do my best to... With two of them at once as well, it was, like, the only opportunity I was going to have. I was not intending to have more children after that. So it was like, okay, this is it. This is my one chance. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Do you ever think about if they hadn't been born prematurely, if you might have stayed and, like, stayed in it?
0: Yeah. I think that was part of it. There was not having a job to go back to. People would say to me, are you going back to your job? I mean, I, you know, Nick was happy to keep me on at, at Sanger for longer we but I wanted to move um because my husband had a, his first lectureship position so it felt like we had to move for his career and if that hadn't happened if we hadn't moved continents not had a job t- that I was already in and they'd not been two at once and they'd not been so sick so many I think, other things yeah I think <laughs> it was just that the full combination and my mum was always a stay-at-home mum and although I'd always I'd never really expected to be that it suddenly became clear to me that my expectations for what I would do with my children relied on my having a lot of time with them and when I when I was put in this position I realised that I kind of wanted to still be able to be what my mother had been able to be to us. But the interesting thing is I would talk about being a scientist and, and my children would always say, oh, mummy's a scientist. Um, and so they they never lost sight of that. And My husband and I would talk about science at home. And I wrote up a paper while when my kids were 18 months old. So that, that was useful because I, I caught up a little bit on what had happened in 18 months at least and wrote something and had to think about science again. Um, so I, I still still could get in the zone yeah. <laughs> if necessary. Um, but most of the time, I wasn't really thinking about it very much. So we haven't talked about what I did do after that. So there was a really crucial time in my decision-making when I was at a public engagement thing uh, you know a science fair type thing i was talking to the person running the little stall and they said oh you were a scientist and i didn't know what to say Uh and i felt really really deeply unhappy about that that day yeah i i I felt like i didn't really i couldn't really say i was a scientist anymore and that felt really bad so i needed to sort that out i needed to be that thing again and you, you never really stop being a scientist because you think that way. I, I decided I only wanted to work part-time and that obviously limits what you can do. And I realised I really missed interacting with students and the sort of mentoring side of things. I actually almost missed that more than the actual research. So I like um, encouraging other people's careers and enabling other people to reach their potential. I think I enjoy that almost as much if possibly more than, than pursuing my own career sometimes. Um, so I ended up teaching so I got part-time positions covering maternity leave and study leave when, when researchers just want to do some research for a bit and not do any teaching and so I, I, I did that for three years at the University of Nottingham and it, it was deeply fascinating because I learned loads of stuff that I didn't know about um, so yeah, I was working. There. Um, I was was teaching statistics and I was teaching parasitology um, and also sort of basic lab skills. Um, So that was that was really interesting. And but you're always teaching somebody else's course. So it's Mm. not quite the same as having your own control over it. Um, But I I met a load of really interesting people, um, great colleagues. um, And I did love teaching all the prep and learning everything and getting it just right can be quite demanding but when i'm actually with students i just love seeing their their faces light up seeing them understand things and when they start asking questions and you realize that you you've got them interested i absolutely love that it's like the best so it's almost as exciting as that moment when you see something new when you actually discover something it's almost as good as that i I like the thrill of teaching and when it works when you've really got something through to people. And you see them inspired. It's it's a, it's a big high, but it's on its own. It didn't seem like quite enough. And after three years of doing that, I felt a little bit like a second-class citizen in the university system, in a university that's very much built around research and um, one of the Russell Group universities, as they call them. Um, so I kind of I needed to reset that balance, and I really wanted to go back to research, but I just couldn't work out how to do it. And then this grant came along.
2: So then, so then you saw the Janet Thornton Fellowship came up. What were kind of the emotions that you went through when you started applying for that and then you got it and then coming back on your first day, I guess?
0: It was the summer and and Nick got in touch with me and said that he thought I should come back to research and that I have got like fifteen. That's hilarious. (laughs) I'd like well, I I got sort of twelve to fifteen years of research experience that wasn't really being used um, to its max as a a teaching only person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And (laughs) he said he contacted contacted me directly and said, "Look, there's this there's this special thing because in science you have to maintain this literature like publication record." You know, you have to show that you're productive, and it has to be continue c- and continuous, really, um, in order to stay in research traditionally, and that has been what everybody aims for. It's very competitive, and it just seemed like having made this decision to step back from it and focus on my children that I'd basically that was at the end of my options, and when I realised it wasn't, I w- I was. I actually cried the first time I realised these things existed. I was, just, yeah. oh, somebody actually wants me to come back. Uh, it was, it was really amazing to think that. So I, I'd been, I've been excited about the fact that it it was now possible because it really wasn't historically possible to come back from something like that um, within science because it's so competitive um but it was also very daunting because i had got this very comfortable existence where i was able to put as much time as i wanted to into the children and also to do charitable work on the side um so i'd started working with this charity that um within nottingham that supports people um with multiples um so because that first two years is just really relentless having two at once um and i'm now actually the chairperson of the nottingham twins and triplets um club um, so I didn't want to give that up mm-hmm. I, I wanted to build on the fact that I knew what it was like and when when mine were little I went to these clubs and they, they help you feel like you're going to cope um, yeah. so I wanted to maintain that but I also wanted to be able to have this new, I wanted to have my cake and eat it basically <laughs> and now I now I have um, so the flexibility of this fellowship makes it possible to try to be all the things that you want to be if, if you're like me and you want to be more than just the one thing in life. Yeah. Some people are really happy to get their head down and just be one thing. But that's never really been me. Um, so, so this makes it possible for me to work part time. So I'm three quarters time now. And on my day when I don't have to work... Um, I can do some of my work for my charity and, and set things up and organize meetings and stuff for them. I can just like sort out the shopping for the week and pack my bags and organize myself, and then I can go and pick up my children and take them to school and be with them and ask them about what they've been doing and all of that sort of thing and help them with their homework and force them to play the piano and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I, you know, I come down here, so it's it's possible with this fellowship and with flexible working and I think this is the most important change that is happening for everybody not just for women who want to take a break from um, full-time work but for everybody like men should be able to decide they want to spend a bit more time doing something I don't know working for a charity part-time and also doing something else part-time. or spend more time with their children, have one day a week with their children and four days a week doing something else. And I feel like when I'm when I'm doing my work, I'm not so worried about all those other things. And I yeah. feel more fulfilled by the fact that I can still do those sort of things that my mum always used to do, which is helping yeah. with charities and things.
2: So I guess in your case, it was kind of like the stars aligned, you'd kept in touch with Nick and Nick got back in touch with you. Um, And that kind of led to you getting this position. What advice would you give to yourself like two years ago? I guess
0: that it's possible to get what you want and that you should ask for what you actually want. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I went to this amazing careers workshop when I was unemployed. And at this workshop, they made you draw what you wanted from your new career and I drew a picture of like being at the university cycling to and from work so that bit of it isn't working out at the moment like (laughs) driving for like two and a half hours to get to work anyway like cycling to and from work spending some time in the lab and some time with students or people outside of the ivory tower you know talking to other people about science Um, and then still coming home and taking the kids to football so that was what I wanted And when I was working at the university, I had a good chunk of that because I was cycling to and from work and I was spending time with students. But I I really missed the research academic side of things. And now I have a lot of that. I still can spend time with my children. I I can do public engagement work and and the Black STEM Futures thing um, that both Catherine and I have signed up for as champions, um, trying to um, help young people. Um, see their way to do more um, science, technology, um, engineering, medicine, um, mathematics. It's a double M, STEM um, subjects. That, that's really, that's, that's helping me get involved with the sort of mentoring and inspiring um, future generation side of things. And then I'm in the lab and I'm at home working some of the time. And I think it's all good, really. Even in the pandemic, there's a, a good balance I feel like I'm I'm able to be all the things I want to be and fit it into the time. And working three quarters time is making that happen. So ask for what you actually want when you get the opportunity. Don't assume it's impossible. Mm-hmm. And I think there's one thing that the pandemic will also have done, which is make people realise that people can work more flexibly and still be maybe as productive as they were or maybe productive enough, who knows. But it's not necessary for you to be working all the hours God sends and to be physically present in your workplace every day to still be able to be a productive person contributing to, to research in this particular case but into any career that you're interested in. It's becoming more and more possible and the more people ask, the more flexible workplaces will have to try to be.
2: Do you feel like anyone particularly like encouraged you or discouraged you when you were saying that you're going to kind of work four days a week and travel down to Cambridge?
0: So I had two friends who had started doing similar and they were amazing. So these two friends who were doing similar really encouraged me that it is possible. But they said, you don't want to be away from home more than two nights or possibly three a week. Otherwise... The amount of disruption to their minds was too much. Um, And on the flip side, some of our family members didn't think my husband could cope.
2: Okay. (laughs) So
0: (laughs) that was interesting. They were really negative, like, you know, acting like it was my duty to be with the children. Whereas the idea that my husband would have to disrupt his work... To the degree of having to come home early sometimes to pick up the children, or having to be a bit more flexible, that that was not acceptable. Yeah. So that really annoyed me. And he didn't feel that way at all. He was like, you know, this this is your time. You know, we can make this happen. And um, you know, he's a, he's a clever and capable human being. There is really no reason why he can't work <laughs> out how to balance children with work yeah, any yeah. more than any woman. Yeah, past absolutely. is forced to do so so he was totally on board he said we'll make it work um but some of the family were really like the first thing my dad said was not well done it was can Alan cope
1: which <laughs> like, yes of course yes <laughs> is the answer to that
0: but I kept saying to to people who did say like you know can Alan cope um like if if you if it was the other way around, people wouldn't would be say saying that. that. No. Yeah, I swear. Like they wouldn't be saying I shouldn't be leaving my children. Your children. Like people also said like you know can your children cope without you? And
1: it's like well our you, children.
0: Exactly, they're <laughs> our children. And yeah. yeah, there's this assumption that on one side, my children would fall apart because I wasn't there, and on the flip side, that my husband couldn't cope with being at home. Mm-hmm. Neither of these things were true.
2: I think it's interesting how culturally we put this like guilt and responsibility on women to not go back to work. But then I think it goes the other way and people don't talk about it that much. With this kind of almost patronising men that they can't look after their own children. And it's not, it's not yes. like they can get handed like a a guide when they have a baby. So why can't a man kind of do the same thing?
0: Yeah, there's really no reason yeah. at all. It's It's just lack of exposure to the environment and the information you need yeah. there's, there's, there's really no reason it's not like they're inherently more or less yeah. capable um, i would say i mean obviously the, the early stages of if, you know feeding them so one of the things you put in your possible questions was um, what your greatest achievements have been and one of them My this year my greatest achievement is managing to learn enough command line based bioinformatics and r programming to be able to create a phylogenetic tree of stuff that i'm interested in bacterial that i'm interested in so the number of steps i've had to get through and things I've had to learn to get to that point. I was at the lab meeting when I presented this, I had the biggest grin on my face. (laughs) And uh, I mean, people like you, Sophie, and and you, Catherine, take it for granted that this is a relatively simple thing to do, but it was a huge deal for me to have gone through all of these steps, oh my goodness. (laughs) So yeah, I'm I'm extremely proud of having got to the point where I have something coherent um, in terms of those skills um but the proudest thing i think i've ever done um was managing to um breastfeed my twins up to the age of 6 months because well, i had to two. pump yeah i had to i had to pump um in the hospital for many months father over it's it's breastfeeding is is hard work um for a lot of people and it's 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 a weirdly demanding thing so i think that was probably the hardest thing i've ever done
1: that's an amazing phd
0: whatever you know there's <laughs> nothing in comparison yeah that's amazing uh,
1: yeah. but yes
0: yeah so.
1: what's your next big goal
0: yeah so obviously my next immediate goal is to produce work that I can publish because much though I don't want that to be the thing that you get um constantly kind of um measured by as a researcher. It is the thing we are measured by as yes, researchers. So I need to pull stuff together and make something that is coherent um, uh, over a reasonable time scale and, and get published. So that's that's my immediate goal. Um, beyond that, I'm trying to position myself so that I can bring back together the the teaching that I did really enjoy um, and that I find really rewarding. With the research and the intention to move back close to my family again, and cycle to work, and <laughs> do research and um, teach as well, and keep some public engagement going on the side, um, and a couple other things. Uh, I'll probably maybe. have to. I think I'll have to work full time at that stage yeah. again. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much, Anne. You're that welcome. Was amazing. What a lovely conversation. Yeah, I feel very inspired after after listening. Yeah, to I it. do too. I can do everything.
2: You can try. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in to the Decoding Life podcast. We'll be releasing our next episode in a couple of weeks. If you enjoyed this one, why not follow us on Instagram at Decoding Life podcast or Twitter at Decoding Life Pod to see what our next episode will be about. Make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of the next time we released an episode.
1: We would like to thank the public engagement team at the Welcome Sanger Institute for their help and funding of this project. In particular, Alexandra Canet-Font and Dr. Elena Pants for their guidance and advice through the entire process. We would also like to thank Piv Palasingham for thoroughly researching our guests prior to interviews, as well as Rick Keynes for our beautiful logo. Thank you.